I invite you to turn, if you'd like, to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 uh, down through verse 5, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll consider just verses 3 through uh, 4. Maybe, Lord willing, one of these years to come, we'll be able to look at First Peter. But for now, we're just going to look at uh, verses 3 to 4 in light of uh, Easter Sunday, the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. Before we read it and consider it, let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to your word, we uh, praise you that we can have time set aside, uh, free from persecution even, uh, to take a look at these things that the Holy Spirit has written. So we pray that as we consider this whole notion of being born again and your mercy toward us and all through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what this living hope looks like that you've called us into, we pray that you'd encourage our hearts, that you would grant that we would live differently in this coming week than we did this past week because of what we've heard, that your Holy Spirit would be at work mightily in each of us to give us what we need. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Just that far. Let me read verses 3 and 4 one more time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So dearly loved people of Hope Church and everyone with us here uh, this morning, uh, the resurrection, as many commentators have pointed out, really changed Peter's life. Uh, you remember Peter saying, Lord, I'll never deny you, uh, and the Lord really telling Peter, predicting what Peter would do, you'll deny me three times, and Peter couldn't believe this and didn't want to think of it, and then there it was, a little servant girl approaches Peter, and Peter denies the Lord Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And so when Jesus Christ goes in the grave, uh, Peter is, you could argue, just at rock bottom not doing well at all. Um, we know that passage from 2 Timothy 2.13, if we deny him, he also will deny us. No, it hadn't been written yet, but, but uh, things like this must have been wandering through Peter's head. And so when Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, something amazing happens to Peter. Uh, the Lord Jesus approaches him and says, do you love me? Yes, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Three times. And the Lord's approaching Peter and basically saying, first, let's get this straight, Peter, do you love me? I don't care about your apostleship. Do you love me? Do we have a relationship? Are you going to deny me again? Do you love me? And Peter's answer is yes. So then the Lord Jesus, as it were, is not only uh, assuring him that their relationship is good as a, a, a Christian to their Savior, but, but as an apostle uh, to, their, to their master. So the Lord commissions Peter. And so you can imagine Peter's excitement. For Peter, the resurrection was amazing, Right? Wow, the Lord Jesus didn't just rise from the dead, 
But the Lord Jesus actually reinstated me. He assured me that I'm a child of his, and then he also sent me out. He's going to use me, me. And so you can hear Peter's excitement kind of just dripping off the pages here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's excited about this resurrection. He's excited about uh, what the resurrection means for people. And I, I submit to you, um, as I, I've thought about this for myself as well this past week, that if, if we really understand the resurrection, we'll be as excited. Resurrection is life-changing. It's game-changing. It was for Peter, and it will be for us as well. And I want us to notice just uh, four things um, this morning from the passage. Number one, the new birth itself. Secondly, the cause of the new birth. Uh, thirdly, the method of our new birth. And then finally, the benefit. So the new birth itself, the cause, the method, the benefit. Um, uh, let's start right in of with the new birth itself. He has caused us to be born again. Now, what's embedded in this word, he has caused us to be born again, <laughs> is the notion that someone from the outside is acting upon us. The ESV has a great translation of it. He has caused us to be born again. So what Peter's highlighting here is that we didn't give birth to ourselves, but that God gave birth to us. Now, there's lots of kids in this room, so that means many of us have attended a birth. <laughs> and there's a couple things we know about a birth. Number one, the baby doesn't lift a finger, right? The baby is there. <laughs> the baby comes down the birth canal or is pulled out of the stomach. The baby does nothing to affect this birth. The mother is the one doing all the work. And the second thing we know is that the baby is born through pain. Uh, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, no baby has come into this world without pain. Uh, just ask any mother. It's not a pleasant experience. Even with epidurals and all of our modern technology, birth is painful. And I want to uh, use that, just that uh, common sense language of, of birth, that uh, the baby does nothing and it's painful, to uh, really impress this upon us, that in order for God the Father to give new birth to us, because we're born again, because we're born spiritually speaking, that we don't do a thing and it involves pain. In order to give birth to people, new birth to people, God has to do something and God has to endure the pain of it. Well, in order for us to be born again, beloved, he's caused us to be born again. What did God have to do? Well, the Holy Spirit had to come and act. The Holy Spirit had to show up, John 3. We don't know where he's, we don't know when he's coming. <laughs> All we can see are the effects of his work. And when he comes into our life, it's him giving us brand new hearts. It's him bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life. In other words, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, then it doesn't matter what Christ has done on the cross, it doesn't matter anything, then we're not going to be born again. It takes the Holy Spirit to come into our lives uh, uh, out with the old stony heart and in with the brand new fleshly heart. That has to happen. But secondly, someone has to bear the pain of our birth. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. The Lord Jesus Christ came down into this world to bear the pain. If God's going to give new birth to us spiritually, then that, takes, that involves pain. Birth involves pain after the fall into sin. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than at Calvary. How are we going to become brand new people? Jesus didn't come down here just to undergo a little bit of a transformation. The new birth is not a little overhaul. It's not even a major overhaul. The new birth is something dying and something else coming to life. It's the total annihilation of something in order that something else can be risen in its place. It's a brand new life, beloved. So if we're going to have new life, then Jesus Christ has to die, and he has to be raised from the dead. That's exactly what he did. He had to go through that pain, the pain of suffering, the pain of coming into a world, birth literally, coming into a world which he created but didn't know him. 
So, beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ went through that pain in order for us to be born again. I want to just leave us with this thought. You and I are born again Christians for one simple reason. It's simply because God acted. That's it. All of us here who are born again Christians are born again Christians for one simple reason. Not because a friend acted. God uses means, of course. But ultimately, not because a friend acted, not because a pastor acted, not because a parent acted, not because another believer somewhere on a college campus acted. But every one of us are born-again Christians simply because God acted, beloved, and he bore all the cost of it. That's why anyone is a believer. That's why all of us in this room who are Christians are Christians. The second thing I want us to notice is the cause of our new birth, which is God's mercy. Take a look at verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, mercy, just a strict definition, is kindness or concern expressed to someone in need. And there's two aspects of mercy. We've noticed this before, but it's worth looking at again. There's, there's the notion of sympathy. So you, you can sympathize with someone's condition. You see their condition and almost empathy. You also feel their condition to a certain extent. But then the second thing is action. So sympathy minus action is not mercy. It's just sympathy. It's feelings towards someone, but it doesn't help them. And action without sympathy can just be heartless. Uh, it, 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 it could be self-centered, actually. But mercy is composed of sympathy and action. And we see that really in, uh, clearly in our Lord Jesus Christ's life in Matthew 14, 14. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So when Jesus was, I love that word compassion, he was cut to the gut. He was intestine, literally. It's the, 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 the noun intestine is verbed. <laughs> so Jesus is cut to the gut looking at people. But then instead of just walking away thinking, wow, those people are in a really miserable spot. I wish I could do something, but I can't. He healed them. So in compassion, he, he's cut to the gut. That's, that's a picture of mercy, but he also does something when he sees people in need. And that's what our God did, beloved, to give us the new birth. According to his not just mercy, but his great mercy, his indescribable mercy, his incredible mercy, God saw us in our pitiable condition, and he acted. Now, when God saw Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he could have looked at them and said, wow, they really messed up. <laughs> they really blew it. <clears throat> I feel really, really bad for them, but I'm not lifting a finger to do anything. I'm, I'm not going to come down and fix their problem. I'll, I'll write them a note, say, look, you guys blew it. You don't even want to be around me anymore. We're not walking anymore. You're not dwelling in my presence anymore. Uh, figure out a way to fix this. And if you can, great, we'll have a relationship. Otherwise, it's just over. No, God in mercy didn't just see their condition. Uh, he knew Adam and he fell, right? And then he comes walking with them. So there, he's, he's starting to move toward them. And he sees that they're scared of him. And he, he makes them animal skins. We've already got a sacrifice. And he promises a seed of the woman to come and crush the head of the serpent. Beloved, already in the beginning, God is showing mercy. Sympathy toward his people who blew it. But then action, he's going to do something about it. And he's displayed this so clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will God act? How, how will God act to save his people? And all throughout history, he's acting. Uh, uh, plagues in Egypt, Passover, crossing the Red Sea, destroying armies of foreign countries when the people are just walking around Jericho and just blow the trumpet and God will take care of the rest. Beloved, God is acting all throughout history, but we know clearly how much he will act when his only begotten son shows up. Well, this is incredible mercy. God, God sees us. We know that. 
We know God sees everything we do. He keeps tabs on everything that we're doing. God's people knew that. But how merciful is he? Well, he'll actually empty heaven of his greatest treasure. He'll actually send and act by sending the Lord Jesus Christ into this world to save sinners of whom uh, we are. So, beloved, that's, that's what the portrait of mercy looks like. According to God's great mercy, he did this. That's why any of us are born again. So let none of us think that we have a God who doesn't act. Look, it, it's possible to go through this life thinking, you know, I know the Lord sees me. I know the Lord sees my condition. I know the Lord hears my cries, but it feels like he just doesn't do anything about it. It, it seems to me that, that he knows all of this stuff, but he never does anything about it. And beloved, I, I want every one of us to be assured as you look at redemptive history, as you consider this whole notion of mercy, that God puts your tears in a bottle, to use the language of the psalmist. He knows your cries, and he will do something about it. He's already proven it to you by giving you brand new birth in his mercy. He's already proven even more than that by putting his own son on the cross and following through and raising him from the dead. God has proven he will act. And one day he will bring an end to all your suffering. He will bring an end to all my suffering, to the suffering of every believer in the world. He's going to bring it to an end. Our God is a God who acts. Just bank on it. The fact that you're a Christian here, the fact that you're born again, means that our God, when he sees people in, in need and misery who call out to him, he is indeed a God who acts. That goes along with his sympathy. Something else, too. Uh, no Christian, again, this doctrine can just be, the doctrines of grace are all throughout Scripture. One thing they always teach is against pride, right? <laughs> so we, every sermon application could be, let none of us be proud. But when God saves in mercy, it means that none of us can ever look down our noses at, at anybody else. It's very tempting as Christians in the public realm or when we get involved in politics, etc. It's very tempting even in the church or in our jobs to look down our noses at other people who aren't Christians, or even to look down our noses at other believers and to think, you know, I'm, I'm just a cut better than you. But beloved, the only, the only reason that you're anything is because God in his mercy acted toward you. In fact, you may say, well, I work harder than they do. Well, where'd your work ethic come from? God's mercy? <laughs> God giving you grace? Well, I'm, I, 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 I'm more successful than they are. I'm I, I don't sin like they do. Well, where'd you get all this strength? God in his mercy. He acted towards you. He made you what he's made you. And so no Christian can walk around with, with pride. The next thing I'd like us to notice from the passage is the method of our new birth. This is in verse 3. It's uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we were raised, how? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's how we got our new birth, sort of historically speaking. Now, one thing about Easter Sunday that I hope all around the world people are saying is uh, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is simply a historical fact. He was raised uh, bodily uh, from the grave. Uh, the Roman soldiers knew how to crucify people and make sure they were dead. In John 19.32, we're told, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So they, they knew what this looked like. The Roman soldiers knew, look, when this person's dead, this person is not. And they came across the other two criminals, one hanging on each side of Jesus, like this, this one isn't dead, this one isn't dead, so break their legs. They came to Jesus and said, wait, he's already dead. No point in breaking his legs and breaking his bones and, and also to fulfill a prophecy. But they understood uh, what, what death was and what it looked like. 
And then Joseph of Arimathea, uh, after asking, took Jesus' body. They, they entombed it in a brand new tomb. And the disciples were scared. People were locking themselves uh, uh, in, in houses. They didn't know what was going to come next. They figured, look, I'm going to die. Uh, if they kill Jesus, they're going to come after me and they're going to kill me. People were scared, beloved. Jesus was really dead. Nobody thought he was faking it. <laughs> Nobody thought that, that maybe he's not actually dead. No, everybody closest to Jesus knew full well that he was dead. And so when the tomb is empty on that third day, that Sunday morning, uh, now, we, now we have to come up with some sort of explanation of this. He was dead, and now the tomb is empty. So what happened? And maybe the best explanation that was ever come up with, the, the best alternative explanation, was what the Jews came up with in Matthew 28. They said, look, someone stole the body. Matthew 28, 12. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Well, that's the best they could come up with. It's actually in the Bible. <laughs> These are Jesus' uh, uh, most vehement enemies. They wanted him dead. They can't stand his guts. They're happy to yell, crucify him. And the best they can come up with is this explanation. Maybe rather plausible until you look at it a little more closely. Number one, uh, if, if they... Roman soldiers would never let his body be stolen. There's a few watches during the night. You watch from 9 to midnight, midnight to 3, 3 to 6 in the morning. And each set of soldiers might take turns uh, standing their, night, their, their watch. If you fell asleep, it might be at the cost of your life. If you lost that body, so you're not going to be sleeping. And if you fell asleep, likely some other soldiers would be awake as well. They were commissioned to guard this tomb. They were going to take this very seriously. And they knew, look, if we blow this, if somebody steals this body, we're probably not getting out of here alive. And I don't know about you, but I'd have been drinking a lot of coffee that night if I was a Roman soldier. <laughs> Something, caffeine pills, you name it. We're not going to fall asleep on this watch. So that's the first problem with somebody stole the body. But the second problem is, is maybe the most obvious. If someone stole the body because the soldiers were sleeping, how would the soldiers know? They were sleeping. <laughs> If someone stole the body, how would anybody know? If, if nobody was around to actually see it and, and be an eyewitness of this, then how can you tell me definitively that somebody stole the body? Look, they were, they, were, they were in a deep sleep. They were out of it. They were sound asleep. Well, great. Then we don't know what happened to the body, but certainly this story doesn't work because you have no idea if somebody stole it if you didn't see it. Beloved, you can, there's tons of theories out there about what happened to Jesus' body, but the only historical one, the only one that makes any historical sense uh, in light of eyewitnesses seeing it and the Jews hating Jesus and wanting to make up a story, the only one that makes any sense is that he actually was raised from the dead. That's the, only, that's the only plausible story. That's the only one that makes any sense. And we know through faith that indeed the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that he appeared on the third day, that the ladies saw him first, which is just mind-blowing, really, because as many commentators have pointed out, there. Their testimony was inadmissible in court. If you're going to start a world-changing revolution, which the new, new Covenant Christianity is, if you're going to start something that's going to set on foot the Gentile nations, you don't start with women as eyewitnesses. Not in this day and age, in, 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 first, in, 30, in 30 AD. That's not who you start with. You start with men. And yet it's the women who see it first. They're the first witnesses of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, beloved, again, Christian... If you were making this up, you would not have made up the story this way. However, it's not made up. The, the women were the first witnesses. Jesus really did raise from the dead. And every story to the contrary doesn't make any sense as it were.
Now, what does this resurrection have to do with us? What does it have to do? Because Peter is driving this home into our lives, talking about our new birth through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. What has to do with this, and it's called a doctrine of union with Christ that probably most of us have heard of, uh, maybe uh, most particularly delineated in Romans 6 and a little bit in Ephesians 2 at the beginning of the chapter as well. As went the life of Christ, so goes our spiritual life. Jesus Christ, when we're united with him, his death becomes our death, the death of the old man. And his resurrection becomes our new life, as it were, historically speaking, so that his death and resurrection guarantee that all who are united with him also underwent a death and a resurrection. So there's a historical notion of this that becomes personal. History, the history of Jesus actually personally affects us. So if Jesus had just come down here and been altered a little and undergone a little bit of a transformation, then, then none of us could really die to ourselves and have a brand new life. It wouldn't be possible. We could just undergo a little bit of a moral transformation. But when Jesus died and rose again, that makes possible our real death, spiritually speaking, and our resurrection. To use the language of Paul, he says this in Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In Ephesians 2 at verse 4, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. Look, here might be a, a way to look at it. In marriage, two become one flesh. When your spouse is doing well, when, when you're in a marriage, when your spouse is doing well, you can too. When they're not doing well, you hurt. As goes your spouse, so goes you. I remember this was vividly illustrated when I was living in Denver. Uh, a co-worker's marriage was not doing well at all, and he was basically uh, sitting around in, in the bar talking about this and, and that he was miserable and that he was just going to escape her. He wasn't going to live life in light of her. And then as I was sitting there, he actually realized this, that <laughs> I can't escape her because the only reason I'm in this bar is because my marriage isn't doing good. In other words, beloved, it's not possible in a marriage to be doing extremely well when your spouse isn't. To become one flesh, as you go, so goes your spouse. In a, in a far greater way, as goes Jesus Christ, so go we. We're so united to him that closely. Like, uh, In fact, even the, 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 the wedding language is used. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, we're the bride. As he goes, so goes we. When he died, as it were, we died with him and we're buried with him. And when he rose out of the grave, we rose out of the grave as well. Meditate on this then. I just want to do one thing with this. When Jesus Christ rose from the grave, there was shock, wonder, excitement, fear in, in the sense of reverence. What in the world is going on? Nobody could really explain this, get their minds wrapped around it. Even his closest disciples were doubting. People didn't know what to do with this. <laughs> it's not like there were, you know, three cheers and everybody was just so really happy. People were scared. They were like, well, is this real? Is this a ghost? What do we do with this? What do, we've, we haven't seen this before. This is amazing. And beloved, if we're united with the Lord Jesus Christ, which we are, and we've received the new birth through his resurrection, then actually when you take a look at your own life, you ought to have the same reaction to some extent. And I should have the same thing. Have you ever just been shocked I mean, almost silent that you're born again, 
you have a new, Jesus Christ came out of that tomb, beloved, in the same way you and I came out of the tomb spiritually. We used to be dead. You ever sat around and not look in the mirror, but just sat around and pondered and just uh, thought, this is just, I don't even know what to do with this, Lord. You've, you've made me new. I'm, I'm born again. This just doesn't happen. How do people who were dead get a new life? How do people who were spiritually estranged from you now, now love you? How, how do people who can't stand your guts now want to worship you and praise you and live for you forever? And they want to, not because they have to, but they want to. How does this happen, Lord? How did it happen to me? Beloved, it's shocking. You know what's amazing? Not that there's not more Christians in the world, but that there's any of us at all. That's amazing, isn't it? Because if God let the world alone... Heaven would have no inhabitants other than three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the one God. If God left the world alone, heaven would be filled with them only. A beloved God has come down here and done a marvelous work, and if he's done this work in your life, it ought to just, just shock the socks out of you. I, I can't believe this. In the same way that people were shocked, Jesus Christ came out of the tomb. This is unbelievable. What do we do with this? Beloved, you've been born again. It's just unbelievable. What, what do you do with it? Do you, do you praise God for it? Are you, are, you, are you shocked into, Lord, I'm amazed, I'm, I'm yours. Here I am, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I'm happy to do it. That, that should be something of our reaction to our own new birth. Then I want to end with the benefit of the new birth in verses uh, 3 and 4. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So first of all, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. So th this word hope is what I, we're going to kind of piece this together, pull this together word by word a little bit. The word hope in our English language has to do with something that's iffy, uncertain. You know, I hope my cancer is benign. I hope my job works out. I hope I don't get into a car accident. These are all things. We, human beings don't govern the future. We don't control the future. So Anything that has to do with the future, which is what hope has to do with, is uncertain. So we hope things. But in the Bible, hope has to do with something guaranteed, something certain. In the Bible, when, when, when the word hope is used, it has to do with something that is just guaranteed by the promises of God, something that is certain, something that is sure. And so, for example, in this life, if you, you know, I hope we get to go on this vacation, Right? But, and I hope the weather's really nice, and I hope the car doesn't break down, <laughs> and I hope everybody's healthy, and I hope that, that we can afford to do the things we want to do. We have all these hopes, right? But we, we, we look forward to it, but we never get our hopes too high up, right? Because always in the back of the head, we're like, well, we might get the flu. Our car might break down. We might not even get there. And then when we get there, we might be so penny broke <laughs> that we're just walking around in circles in a small town somewhere just wanting to get back home. So it wasn't as great as we wanted to. But but in the Bible, hope is something that you can actually bank your life on and be excited about. Hope in heaven because it's guaranteed. In other words, beloved, another way of putting it is this. Heaven is so guaranteed to you that you don't need to waste a second of your life doubting it, wondering if it's going to happen, or, or thinking maybe it'll be disappointing and I won't quite make it there. Oh no, you can live your life excited. You can live your life in unbounded joy, beloved. And it's not a false joy, and it's not something that is ever going to disappoint because when you finally, because you will get there, you will arrive in heaven. So when Peter talks about hope, when the, Paul talks about hope, when the Bible talks about hope, it's something that is guaranteed. And we might say, well, 
what is this hope? What does it look like? Uh, let's put some flesh on it. And Peter in verse 3 actually kind of uh, explains this hope. So if you would take a look at verse 3, I want to just mention this to you. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All right, Peter, what does that living hope look like? He goes on to explain it, as it were, to an inheritance. And then he's going to go on and explain this inheritance further. So if you're asking, what is this living hope? Well, this living hope is an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled and unfading. So I want us to take a look at um, Peter's explanation of living hope, first by looking at the word inheritance. Now, again, there's actually six aspects of, of, uh, of this I want to look at. We'll start with inheritance. A working definition of inheritance is something earned by another, freely given to you based upon a relationship, based upon being in good favor with the person who gave it. An inheritance is something earned by another, freely given to you. You didn't do anything to get it based upon the good favor of the person who gave it to you, that whatever relationship you had with them. So first of all, an inheritance is something earned by another. Beloved, the inheritance that we have coming our way, which is guaranteed, it's not something that you have to entertain the notion of wishful thinking, well, I, I hope I get this inheritance. hope I don't mess this inheritance up. <laughs> I, 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 I hope that everything pans out in the end well. No, this inheritance is coming the way of every Christian, and this inheritance was earned by another. Now, very simply, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who earned it. So it was his sweat, it was his obedience, which was perfect. It was his making it through the temptations. It was his undergoing suffering and pain and difficulty and perfectly doing the will of the Father. It was his being the perfect Adam, the second Adam, being the perfect human being. It was on the back of that that we get the inheritance. It was Jesus' blood. That's the reason we get the inheritance. In other words, he works and we're the charity case. He did all the work and we get all the benefit. And this is incredible about Christianity because we have a lot of work to do and, 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 and there's many things that we have to do as far as agonizing to serve the Lord. Oh, beloved, the entrance into the kingdom came at only one person's agony, the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I didn't work our way into the kingdom. You and I didn't sweat our way into the kingdom or bleed our way into the kingdom. Only one person did that, Jesus Christ. He's the way that we get into the kingdom. He's the reason that we have an inheritance. His work. We talk about salvation by grace, the covenant of grace, because we talk about it as it relates to us. But if you want to talk about the covenant of grace as it relates to Jesus, it's actually his work. It's a covenant of work for Jesus. He comes down here and he slaves away voluntarily and he does everything that we should have done and can't do. And he suffers in our place, all that work, so that we can have a great inheritance. <laughs> Jesus didn't need to do this. It's not like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were lacking glory or communion or worshipers in heaven. They weren't. They were perfect. They needed nothing outside of themselves. And yet God in his mercy came down here to do this so we could have an inheritance. Jesus Christ did the work. And it's freely given. The inheritance comes our way. Not one of us are going to say, hey, thanks for giving me my due. Not one of us on the last day are going to say, well, thanks, you know, you owed me this, Lord. An inheritance that we're going to receive, beloved, the inheritance that we are going to receive is something that's freely given to us. On the last day, we're going to walk into the joy of our master. We're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And every one of us is going to be absolutely certain that this is a free gift, that we didn't earn this. Beloved, that's exactly the way it is. Jesus Christ, God the Father, Holy Spirit, they freely gave us this inheritance. 
and it simply has to do with the relationship, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It simply has to do with a relationship. God and his love favorably uh, disposed toward us because of his love, circular reasoning. That's the only reason we're getting this. So if God doesn't love us, we don't get heaven. If God doesn't choose any of us, if God doesn't pull us out of the mass of fallen humanity, then nobody gets an inheritance. So that's what this hope looks like. It's an inheritance. And then he goes on to describe this inheritance as imperishable. Now, the language is kind of brought in from the, the fruits and vegetables realm. You know, if you set a banana on the counter, you get maybe a week, two. By the third week, you might turn it into mush or a smoothie, but after a month, you're probably done with this thing, right? It's fit for the garbage can or throw it on the lawn and let it be fertilized or in the compost heap. Same thing with vegetables. Things perish, beloved. But this inheritance that we're going to get is not perishable. Every worldly inheritance decays, so to speak, but not this inheritance. It doesn't decay. It requires no maintenance, and it will be glorious always. It's also undefiled, meaning it's not spoiled by anything. Now, my dad-in-law, he, he does a lot of uh, appraisals and a lot of auctioneering for land sales up in northwest Iowa. And one thing he always talks about is how land sales almost, I shouldn't say almost always, many times they issue forth into sibling fights because all of a sudden now someone who died with northwest Iowa land prices are crazy. All the black dirt, et cetera, and the crop yields are, are just un unbelievable. So when, when someone dies who owns... Uh, uh, 1,000 acres or 500 acres at $15,000 an acre, and now you have someone who's a multimillionaire very easily, and kids start fighting over this. So we, by the time you get the inheritance, it's actually defiled. It's not as good as you thought it was, right? Because now you may have tons of money, and you've got a million bucks in the bank after paying all your taxes, but, but you lost your family members. Now your siblings hate you. Now, now things aren't the same anymore, and your, your view of the world isn't the same anymore, so it's defiled. But beloved, here's the greatness of this inheritance. There's going to be no defiling about it. It will be absolutely pure, filled with unbounded joy, blissful. It's, it's so good that our minds can't even fathom what it's going to be like. There'll be none of us in heaven saying, you know, if only this had taken place, it would be better. You know, if only I didn't have this guilt in my head, or if only, if only I, I wasn't rustling with this, then heaven would be so much better. But it's not quite everything that it could be. None of us are going to entertain that thought at all when we get there. It's an inheritance that is completely undefiled. And then it's unfading. Now, simple illustration. How many of you kids remember what you got for Christmas? Don't yell it out. Yeah, maybe some of you have good memories or you're still playing with it. But most of us are probably like, Christmas, huh, that was, what, three months ago, four months ago? I don't have a clue. Uh, I bet, though, the moment you got it, you were pretty excited, Right? wow, this is amazing, I got a toy tractor, I got, a, I got some curling irons, you know, who, whatever, whatever it is we got. And we were excited, we're curling our hair right in the mirror, five minutes later, we're plowing the carpet, and farming on the carpet, as it were. A beloved, three months later, that fades, right? Six months later, it fades. Everything we get in this life, everything we see in this life, every experience fades. I remember living in Denver, you're, you're by the mountains at first, you're like, wow, the mountains are right there, this is amazing. But, you know, after a year there, six months there, you're getting up to work, it's early in the morning, you leave, it's dark, you get home, it's dark, you don't even see the mountains, you don't even care they're there, you're still, you're still waking up to an alarm clock and going to bed tired, right? Everything in this world fades, but here's the amazing part about this inheritance that we have coming our way, it, it doesn't fade, it's unfading. It will never, ever lose its glory. Uh, this is something that, that, that I just love about heaven that 
that no one in heaven will ever be bored. It will never lose its amazingness. The presence of God will never become dull to us. Now, this is, this is impossible for us to wrap our minds around because every created thing loses its luster at some point. If you live in Glacier National Park and you get to see these incredible sights, at some point it's boring. If you had to build the going to the sun road, build it, and you were scared of heights and you're seeing all this scenery, you're thinking, I don't want to be here because I could fall off this cliff. Beloved, everything in this world fades. Everything fades. But in heaven, when we finally get into the presence of God, it will never fade. You and I will never, ever have a dull, boring day where we wish we were somewhere else. It's, that's our inheritance. That's something coming our way. That, that's something worth waiting for. And then it's kept in heaven for you. What does this mean? We'll have to wait for it. It's kept in heaven for us. It's being guarded there, meaning we can't lose it. No one can come and steal our inheritance. But it's kept in heaven for us. It's not here. So if we're thinking, Lord, show me you love me. Show, show me that I got this great inheritance. It's like, well, you're going to have to wait. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment into our hearts. He's shown us his love by putting Jesus on the cross, raising him out of the grave. He's demonstrated his love toward us. And now he says, look, patience, wait. It's kept in heaven for you. You'll get there. I'm coming, and he will come. So, beloved, if we want to enjoy this inheritance, if we want to live, as it were, resurrected lives, these born-again lives, one of the things we have to do is, is learn patience, is wait for it. And then one more thing that I want to close with is that this inheritance or this hope, this, this hope is an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. But one word back before hope I want to look at is the word living. Now, this is fascinating. It's not just hope, which would have been amazing in and of itself. The, the whole thought of hope biblically is, is, is wow. But it's a living hope. So it's a hope that, that's alive, that breathes, that lives, that comes into our lives and, and changes us. It's not a dead hope, but a living hope. Well, what does it mean for us? It means that, that our inheritance that's coming our way ought to actually change us. It can actually affect us. It can actually live in us. It can change our entire outlook on this, outlook on this world, on daily life. Beloved, if I told you that Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and Donald Trump, and anyone else who you know has billions of dollars, got together, and they decided that they were going to give to you as an inheritance all their combined wealth at their death, would it change the way you live today? You better believe it would. Nobody, nobody would look at work tomorrow the same way. None of us would. Monday would be totally different, right? Monday morning, <laughs> we'd probably be up at 3 in the morning thinking, this is great. What am I going to do with all this? How am I going to spend my time? Like, just totally different world. Maybe some of us would live the same, but <laughs> we'd be thinking differently. Oh, beloved, if, if God guarantees that you have an inheritance if you know it's coming your way, an inheritance that makes Bill Gates look like a homeless person, that makes Warren Buffett look like he's dirt poor, God has promised you an inheritance that is the entire earth. If that's coming your way, would you live differently? Would you live differently today, tomorrow? Would we change the way we lived? That's the notion of living hope. It's not just, yeah, I got this doctrine, okay, I understand this, on we go. No, it's a hope that's alive. Does it change the way you live? Does it change the way I live? It, it has to. 
It can't not change the way we live. It makes us bold for the Lord. Lord, I may blow it. I'm, I'm fine with that. I've got heaven to come next. Lord, I'm going to go take resurrection. For Paul, what did the resurrection do? It made him go fight with wild beasts at Ephesus, be adrift at sea. It made him undergo stonings, beatings. I mean, he's left for dead. Again, Jews know how to kill people, right? Well, Paul's dead. <laughs> he ain't making it. Yep, uh, just stop throwing. He's done. And then he gets up and keeps on going. Why? Because of the resurrection, because of heaven, because of the inheritance that's coming, because he's living for another country. Beloved, if you've got an inheritance that's coming your way, guaranteed, another country that you're not going to miss out on, that God says you're going to get there, period, end of story. Would you live differently? Of course you would. How are you and I living differently in light of this? It should drastically change the things we're willing to do for the Lord here, the risks we're willing to take. None of us on the last day are ever going to think, you know, I wish it would have played it just a little more safe in my life, meaning I wish I would have built my own kingdom, maybe had a little more comfortable living, maybe done a few more things that made my life easier when I was in my 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s. Because right now I'm really feeling it and my body's kind of wearing out, et cetera. None of us are going to have those thoughts. We might have this thought. Man, I wish I would have just poured more into the kingdom of God because that's about ready what I'm, about what I'm to walk into. That, that's all there really was. I wish I had done everything, all my work to the glory of God because I'm about ready to receive the rewards or the lack thereof for the last day. Regarding hope, C.S. Lewis has this great quote. I, I probably bore you with it, but I, I've never seen anybody who had a better quote. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for those earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Beloved, you'll be disappointed in this life. We'll, we'll have moments like Peter. We'll have moments where we're at the bottom. But here's this living hope again. It brings us back to life. Lord, there's more to come. The end of the story isn't here yet, and that's how that hope lives. It brings us back to life, as it were, with the Lord Jesus living in us and helps us press on one more day at a time, keeping our eyes focused on what is to come. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're, you're in a hopeless existence. If you trust in him, you can have hope and, and be part of this great inheritance that's coming at the end of time. Let's, let's pray together.